Hello and welcome to NewsHour from the BBC World Service, coming to you live from London. I'm Paul Henley. Today, a French policeman who swapped places with a hostage during an Islamist attack in southwestern France has died. His cousin has been telling us about his life, and you can hear that interview very soon. Also today, people will march in cities across the United States and beyond in favour of tighter gun control, but there's no shortage of resistance to new legislation. Gun laws and gun restrictions only affect those who are going to follow the rules to begin with. Criminals are criminals for a reason. They don't follow the rules. So you can, pass, you can pass a million gun laws, but it isn't going to change a bad person from doing a bad thing. They will find another means to do bad things. That's coming up. Plus, do you know your Debussy? We will hear how the French composer still influences modern musicians a hundred years after his death. First, the French National Gendarmerie is flying its flags at half-mast today in tribute to the policeman who offered himself as a hostage to help end what the president called an Islamist terrorist attack, and he died of his wounds. Arnaud Beltram, who was 45, became the fourth victim of a shooting spree and a siege at a supermarket in the town of Trebes in the southwest of France. The attacker had claimed allegiance to the Islamic State group. We'll hear shortly from a relative of Mr Beltram. First, we're joined live from Trebes by the BBC's Gavin Lee. Gavin. Well, I've spent the last few hours in Trebes. It's very close to Carcassonne, about 15 uh, minutes' driveway, in fact, outside the Super U supermarket, which was the, the scene of the siege for two hours yesterday. Uh, first of all, the two places where we're starting to see flowers and tributes of remembrance and gratitude, outside the supermarket, but also outside the headquarters of Lieutenant Colonel Arnaud Beltram, the heroic officer who's secured the release of not just one hostage. We're told by the uh, French prosecutor today, Francois Malin, that there were several hostages, we think possibly up to ten hostages, that uh, every single one of them, uh, Arnaud Beltram said he would take their place, take him instead, and ultimately lost his life uh, in that exchange. Uh, he was one of the first at the scene, we now know, at the supermarket. He was talking and negotiating early on before he swapped his place and made himself one of the hostages. Uh, he kept his phone on that allowed the police special forces to, to come inside to move in and kill the gunman. But Gerard Colomb, the French interior minister, saying this morning that he, that France will never forget the bravery, the sacrifice of Arnaud Beltram. Something else that's emerged in the local press here, and Le Figaro have picked this up, is a, a, an interview he did in December where he said he, he had taken part in another, in a mock uh, attempt to ha stage a siege at a supermarket in Carcassonne only a few months before. So extraordinary very, that it seems to, that he's trained and been through this in the past. Gavin Lee near Carcassonne in southwestern France. Many thanks. Florence Nicolique is Arnaud Beltram's cousin and she's having to come to terms with his loss now. She was kind enough to speak to us. Arnaud, since he was a little boy, he always talked about uh, the army and becoming a soldier. I mean, that has been a, a passion in his life since he was really a baby. He used to play with little uh, teen soldiers, you know, all the time. And I think because his grandfather was in the army as well, he was like kind of an idol to him. And uh, that's why he wanted to do that. And at the same time, he was really proud um, of being French. And he always wanted to do the best thing for his country. And I know when we had family reunions, he always talked about what he was doing and how much he loved uh, his job. Uh, even though sometimes he did some really uh, 
difficult things because he was a man of action. and He's being hailed as a, a hero by practically everyone in France, including yeah. the president. Is that, is that something you can relate to even now? Yes. Oh, yes, definitely. It's very weird for us, I mean, the family, to see his face on the TV and listening to all these people calling him a hero and what he did was so wonderful and so brave. But at the same time, even though we were very surprised and shocked when we heard what happened, we we were not surprised in the sense that that's the thing he would do without hesitation. I'm sure he didn't even think of the consequences that could happen after that. He was so well-trained and emotionally was so strong that I'm, I'm sure he, he never, never hesitated and did what he, he thoroughly thought was the best. I gather he was involved in a training exercise uh, only at the end of last year, yeah, uh, training for something ago, similar like, to this, to this, to what happened. Exactly. So I don't know if it was like destiny or something, but uh, yeah, it, this is exactly what he did in a supermarket, tr- training as an exercise and having all the policemen and firemen practicing on a situation like that. And it's really weird to to see that it became true. It was real in the end. I'm sure they didn't advise him to take the place of a hostage in that training exercise, though. No, I think that's something you have into you. You know, some people would think about what could happen and the worst for them. And for him, it's just like, it was like a machine. You know what I mean? It's just like, he's got to do it. It's his job. Uh, He does it. He's got to save lives. So he does his job. And he did it. So professionally, he even left his phone open so the police could hear what yeah, was going is, on in the situation. Impressive, actually. When I heard that, he left um, the, the phone on so that all the policemen outside could hear what was happening. And it's really thanks to that that they were so reactive and they probably saved, well, his life for a short time, unfortunately, but probably um, saved more hostages because they had time to flee away and kill the terrorist. He was going to get married this summer, wasn't he? And indeed, he was married yeah. when he was in hospital. Exactly. I mean, his wedding was planned on in June, on the 9th. Um, he was really a family man. And he was really looking forward to that, having us all over there, all these cousins and aunts, uncles and friends. It was going to be a, a wonderful party. And was so sad that it's not going to happen. We were very close when we were younger, really, really close. So um, when I see his face on TV, it's uh, it's really hard for me and for, for all of us. Um, I can tell my cousins, his brothers are very, very strong. His mom is really strong too. And that's um, that's that's good. I mean, all together, uh, we, we can survive this because it's it's a real trauma, really. When you see things like this on TV, you always thought, okay, uh, it's happening, we live in a dangerous world, but when it's actually somebody close in your family that dies for a stupid reason because of these terrorists, it's difficult. It's it's very hard to believe. But the thing we have to keep on being very strong and don't let the terrorists win or stop us leaving and going out and doing what we have to do. It would be proud of us continuing anyway. That was Florence Nicolique, a cousin of the French policeman Arnaud Beltram, who had exchanged himself for one of the hostages in the supermarket in Trèbes and who died earlier today.
Later today, in Washington, D.C., and in hundreds of other cities around the U.S., people will take to the streets to demand a change to the country's gun laws. A month on from the murder of 17 people in a school shooting in Florida, students who survived the attack have been in the nation's capital to lobby politicians. Those pupils have been the driving force of a movement that's inspired what's being called a march for our lives. But the debate about guns inspires strong feelings, and the students know they face tough opposition from America's gun lobby. Our correspondent Chris Buckler has been following the students on their journey to D.C. When the bus arrives, you could mistake this for a regular class trip. Students taken from the sunshine in Parkland, Florida, only to find themselves surrounded by snow in Washington. It's too cold! It's a journey they've made to speak to some of the capital's leading politicians on behalf of 17 pupils and teachers whose absence is a constant reminder of what they're campaigning for. Nervous, but so excited. Hopefully they actually listen to us, what we're trying to say. We've got news guys. We're seeing new Senator Smith from Minnesota. For the last 24 hours, the students of Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School have been seeking out senators and influencers, lobbying lawmakers and demanding tighter restrictions on guns. I used to think nothing would happen. There's always a brick wall that I'm going to run against. But the fact that I was just in a room with Joe Biden proves to me that anything is possible and change can come and it will come and there is not a brick wall. People have talked about this as really feeling like a moment. The question is, is it just a brief moment or or can this be a moment when there is real change? It's been over a month and we're still keeping it going we're still the momentum has not slowed down it hasn't even slowed down it hasn't stalled at all and if you don't uh, do what we we want we're going to vote you out and we're going to take your place this has become a battle between the many americans worried about what seems like a never-ending stream of school shootings and those who see guns as a part of their lives you're here at a shooting range with your nephew Yes. I mean, what age is he? My nephew? Yeah. Twelve. Do you have any concerns about having a 12-year-old round guns around a shooting range? Uh, no, not at all. I started shooting when I was that age. I'm now 64. I'm one of those people who uh, was with my grandfather and my father. I've been around guns my entire life. From the Blue Ridge Arsenal's gun shop, you can hear constant thuds from the shooting range out back. Mark Warner is part of the management at the Virginia store and he says they're already very careful about who they sell weapons to. Gun laws and gun restrictions, again, only affect those who are going to follow the rules to begin with. Criminals are criminals for a reason. You don't follow the rules. So you can pass, you can pass a million gun laws, but it isn't going to change a bad person from doing a bad thing. They will find another means to do bad things. However, campaigners are convinced that new restrictions could help and survivors have some of the most powerful voices in that discussion. We went to print um, on our memorial issue, which is profiles on uh, each of the 17 victims. Inside a Washington museum dedicated to journalism, some of the teenagers from Parkland told a packed audience how they put together a student newspaper detailing how their classmates had been killed. We had to write the names of all the victims, I found it, that last paragraph really hard to write because I had to write freshman so many times. Like, you just started school and you got killed in school. But this was a sympathetic audience. Others seemed less keen to listen. 
Dmitry Hoff knows that today's march will capture headlines, but there remains that question, will it bring change? It's been very, very emotionally confusing, I guess you could say. You know, you're here because you had a friend who passed away. You're here because you were in the building. You're here because you had a teacher or mentor pass away. But ultimately, me, I'm doing this because I don't want any other student to have to go and attend their friend's funeral instead of their friend's birthday party. Chris Buckler reporting, and we'll be hearing more from Washington, D.C. a bit later on in the programme. Here's a reminder, you can listen to BBC NewsHour whenever you want. Go online and search for BBC NewsHour or subscribe to our free download, updated twice a day. Just search for BBC NewsHour podcast. You're with the World Service. Coming up. The local time in London is now 10.16am and your Qantas 787 Dreamliner is now ready for boarding at gate 20. The first ever direct flight from Australia to Europe has taken off, but it's 17 hours long, so who will want to take it? We'll speak to someone who's on board right now. The headlines, President Macron of France has led tributes to a policeman who died of his wounds after swapping places with hostages during Friday's Islamist attack. The security chief in the Egyptian city of Alexandria has been targeted by a car bomb. He escaped unhurt, but a policeman was killed. Catalonia's regional parliament has abandoned plans to appoint a new leader and opposition parties in Ghana have criticised a deal to allow a US military presence in the country, saying it undermined sovereignty. This is Paul Henley with NewsHour, live from the BBC in London. Now, in March last year, the BBC's science reporter Rebecca Morell was making a film at the top of one of the world's most active volcanoes, Mount Etna, in Sicily. And this is what happened. There was a really, really big explosion. And this sent a huge mass of rocks up into the air, and incredibly hot rocks as well, 1,000 degrees Celsius. So we started to run. I mean, I don't think I've ever run as fast in my life. All the while being pelted with these things, hoping not to be hit on the head by a massive boulder. But we, we did make it out okay eventually to the snow vehicle and the tourists who were up there too. There were injuries, people had terrible cuts, burns, bruises. I fell over as I was running, smashed my face. That wasn't very clever. But we have made it down safely tonight. Well, as if near-constant eruptions weren't enough, we now have news that Mount Etna is sliding towards the sea, according to a new piece of research published in the Bulletin of Volcanology. How concerned should we, and more specifically the population of the southern tip of Italy, be? John Murray is a volcanologist with the Open University and he's been studying Mount Etna for 49 years. I asked him how easy it was to get up the mountain, as Rebecca Morell did. One of the reasons I studied Mount Etna is A, because it's such an active volcano, so there's a lot happening, and B, because it is very accessible. And there's a vehicle track which goes up quite near the summit 
on two sides. So tourists can get very near the top. In fact, anyone can walk up to the top of the volcano. It is nearly 11,000 feet high, so it's a long walk. But because of that, they can be exposed to danger. There are long periods, yes, when you get explosions of molten lava thrown into the air every few minutes. In the past five years, there have been hundreds, literally hundreds of very violent eruptions lasting from about half an hour to, you know, a day or two. What happens is you get fountains of lava that pour out and then a a lava flow, quite sometimes quite rapid and voluminous lava flows, and then the whole thing dies down again. That sounds very worrying for the inhabitants of Sicily. It's quite a heavily populated place. It is, yes. I mean, there's probably something like a million people who actually live on the, the flanks, the lower flanks of Mount Etna. But this kind of activity really doesn't affect them, the, the summit activity. Just occasionally you get a flank eruption where the, the sides of the volcano split open and then lava pours out. And it may be, yes, right on top of a village. I mean, in 1928, an entire village was totally wiped out by such a an eruption, and uh, the whole village had to be removed to a different locality. So occasionally, yes, it can be devastating. But as things are, Etna is moving. That's right, yes. I mean, very slowly, but... uh, Our measurements show that since about 2000, when we first had a network big enough to to measure this kind of thing, it is slowly drifting towards the sea at a rate of about 14 millimetres per year. So it's a very slow kind of drift. And we've had to measure it between eruptions, I should say, because during eruptions, you get very much bigger movement. I've had a movement of uh, four four metres horizontally. So that's a huge amount just in one go. But here we're talking, talking about when it's in its passive dormant state. That's when you can measure it um, most easily. And it clearly shows this movement towards the sea. And what are the mechanics of the movement? What's sliding on top of what? Mount Etna sits on older sedimentary rocks, not volcanic at all. And they are quite ductile, really. So there are clays and that sort of thing. So clearly a huge, heavy mass like Mount Etna sitting on top of that is not a very stable situation. So it appears to be sliding down a slope. I should say also that this sedimentary surface beneath Etna slopes between one to three degrees towards the sea. It's sort of sliding down slope and it's lubricated by these weak sediments beneath. And I understand that while the rate of movement is constant, there's not that much cause for concern, but if it speeds up, there is. Yeah, it does vary slightly. I think if this starts to increase, then there would be more cause for concern. The trouble is that when you look at older extinct volcanoes, which are built on slopes like this, there are signs that they have moved downhill. But also, later in their history, they tend to have catastrophic slope failure on the downslope side, um, which could be quite devastating if it were to occur on Mount Etna. But as I say, thank goodness, there's no kind of indication that this is going to happen anytime soon. Uh, Does your academic fascination with Mount Etna extend to uh, affection, do you think? Yes, my wife has described it as uh, my mistress, and I suppose there's a lot in that. Um, yes, I mean, it is, it's quite a fascinating volcano I mean, because it is so active and also because it is so difficult to understand. I mean, this has taken a long, long time, really, to get this kind of information out. 
volcanologist John Murray on the enduring appeal of Mount Etna. Now, it's a 100 years since the death of Claude Debussy, the French composer who helped to change the direction of music at the start of the 20th century in one of the centres of the artistic world, Paris. Debussy is an influence that's still around today, as we hear now from pianist Joanna McGregor from the Royal Academy of Music here in London. We know that Debussy had this great sense of visual art and literature and poetry and would often call his preludes, for example, very poetic things, footsteps in the snow, the submerged cathedral, things to do with enchanted places and fairy tale stories. And this is in general, I think, true of a lot of French music. I mean, he was living in Paris at a time when Ravel and Sarty were there, many other great composers, Stravinsky, of course, This is the opening of one of his most famous pieces, the Cathedral Under the Sea, it's known. And it's got this beautiful, open, impressionistic beginning. Just, for the, just from those few bars, you can hear a sort of revolutionary way of this kind of stasis, beautifully serene stasis with the pedal, the beautiful wash of sound and these open parallel harmonies. And he was terribly influenced by the Javanese gamelan, which uh, somebody had given a gamelan set to the Paris Conservatoire quite early on. Debussy had been a student there. And then, of course, gamelan music really hit Paris in a big way in their big exhibition which I think was 1889, so when Debussy was still very young. And all those French composers were amazed by the colours, the sonorities, the way the harmony moved. It was very anti-Western, in other words, and it permeated then their sense of colour and sonority and how harmonies could travel. His music influenced all these great composers that came after him. Messiaen, Dutier, Verez, and then obviously after them, even younger composers, right down to our own George Benjamin. Everything seems to go back to Debussy, actually. And I think in that way, that's a very powerful legacy that is left. That was pianist Joanna McGregor there from the Royal Academy of Music here in London. You're listening to the World Service from the BBC. Hello, I'm Carrie Gracie, and until recently, I was the BBC's China editor. Well, I've got something really exciting to tell you. I'm now presenting The Real Story podcast. It's also made by the BBC World Service. We take a single topic in and around the news and we examine it in depth. One hour, one topic every week. The idea is to give important issues just that bit more space to breathe. So if you're looking for a slower look at our fast-changing world, search for The Real Story wherever you find your podcasts.
Coming up, imagine getting into a plane for 17 hours non-stop. But first, the president of Peru has become the latest scalp to be taken by campaigners trying to root out an epidemic of corruption that's affected 14 countries. Congress in Lima accepted Pedro Pablo Kuczynski's resignation on Friday. He's alleged to have received illegal payments from the Brazilian construction company Odebrecht. Mr. Kuczynski denies the allegations against him. Richard Lapper is former Latin America editor for the Financial Times newspaper, and he's been following this case. Odebrecht is a construction company that started life in the northeast of Brazil, and over decades really established incredibly close relationships with governments, with the Brazilian state governments initially, in terms of winning construction contracts for roads and hydroelectric dams and ports and things like that. And this business expanded dramatically. Uh, I guess over the past twenty years, throughout other Latin American countries and into Africa, and there are many allegations that this company has bribed its way towards winning contracts. I don't think there's any doubt. You know the legal proceedings that have uh, come to light over the past, uh, really since 2014, from reading the, these proceedings, that Odebrecht's way of operating was to pay politicians for access to contracts. Leading politicians, leading politicians, and these monies were sometimes disguised in over invoicing or whatever. These monies went to finance political activity, whether electoral campaigns or the basic operations of political parties. And some of that money was diverted into essentially personal enrichment by these politicians. So we've seen, you know, a number of politicians, not just in Brazil but elsewhere in Latin America. In prison as a result of these allegations, right? Not just lost their jobs, but they've been in prisons. I mentioned the Peruvian president, now former Peruvian president.、Yeah. What happened? So what happened with Pedro Pablo Kuczynski is that he was elected president in 2016 on a very narrow majority. PPK, as is, is nicknamed, was a, also a minister in previous Peruvian governments. And also a very prominent businessman, and he is accused by the Peruvian opposition of taking bribes, being paid money by Odebrecht for favours in, in in the past. He denies all that. He says he was operating perfectly fairly. And to be honest, at this point with PPK, there's been no legal proceedings. It's been a political case, yeah. And the problem is in Peru that three previous presidents, not just PPK, have also been caught up in this scandal. One of whom, Oyanto、uh, Mala, the previous president, is in prison. The repercussions in Brazil of this investigation have been huge, haven't they? Well, look, Brazil's obviously at the centre of this, right? I mean, the end of 2016, the Department of Justice of the United States published some numbers: nearly 800 million dollars in bribes paid by Odebrecht between 2004 and 2015. Of that amount, about 350, so nearly 50 percent, was paid in Brazil. Richard Lapper, former Latin American editor for the Financial Times newspaper. You're listening to the BBC World Service. I'm Paul Henley with NewsHour. Now, if you're not a fan of long-haul air travel, spare a thought for those currently on board the first non-stop flight between Australia and Europe, two destinations on almost opposite ends of the planet. Back in the 1930s, aviators used to win prizes for managing to do the same journey in fewer than three days. Mr. C. 
W.A. Scott will tell you the story of their epoch-making flight. On our first leg, went on to a point somewhere north of Baghdad, which neither of us knew, and landed in some place. Kirkut. Kirkut. Where we refueled and flew into Baghdad. Then after Baghdad, into Allahabad. Then after 35 minutes on the ground at Allahabad, we started on the third leg of our flight to Melbourne between Allahabad and Singapore. And that only got them halfway. Fast forward another 30 years and the journey time of the 1960s was shorter but still a challenge. Now, in great ships of the sky, British captains and their crews wing their way half round the world to Australia in 33 hours, almost 13,000 miles. Those two pieces of archive were from British Pathé. Now, today marks the first time passengers will have been able to make the trip without stopping. The inaugural service between Perth and London, operated by the Australian airline Qantas, is now in the air, and the journey of 17 hours will be among the longest in the world. Craig Platt is editor of the website traveller.com.au, and I caught up with him just before he boarded the plane in Perth in Western Australia. There's been such a big build-up to this flight, you know, being a, a bit of a record-breaker. They've kind of announced it more than a year ago, and then they delivered the plane, and there's been a lot of publicity and a lot of interest right around the world for this first flight from Australia to the UK non-stop. We've been at the airport for about three or four hours already, and we're just about to board now. So we're in the brand-new lounge that they've launched specifically for passengers doing this London flight. And it's very much a party atmosphere in here, which I think is probably going to mean everyone's going to crash and fall asleep pretty quickly once we get on board. Is there anything unique that's going on in preparation for this travelling marathon? Are they offering massages or something? Well, I'm actually giving you uh, this interview now from inside the relaxation studio, which is kind of the quietest area in the lounge, where I participated in a relaxation session earlier with a yoga teacher. So we sat on these mats and... uh, did breathing exercises, stretching exercises. So that's to help us relax before the flight or for people coming the other way who are transiting in Perth, they can stop here, do these exercises with the yoga teacher, kind of recover a little bit and then go on to their next destination. How do you think the crew will regulate this flight? Will they be letting light in at certain times, turning down the temperature when they want you to eat and so on? Well, yeah, they've done a lot of work with the University of Sydney to work on how to best help passengers cope with the length of the flight. So they are going to be doing things like adjusting the temperatures and serving different types of meals that are lighter and will help you kind of feel better and less jet lag. So that's kind of an ongoing process. They're actually wiring up some of the passengers on this flight with kind of Fitbit-type technology to monitor their sleep patterns and monitor their heart rates and, and this kind of stuff. They're going to use that data to kind of adjust things like when the meals are served, when the lights go out, that kind of thing. I'm guessing that for the industry, it's cheaper to go in one leg rather than two to Australia because you don't have to take off and land twice. I would say that's probably right because the the taking off and landing, you know, you've got to use a lot of thrust to get the, the plane up there. I'm not sure if price is necessarily the main reason Qantas wanted to do this. I mean, certainly they're flying the Boeing 787 Dreamliner, which is a much more fuel-efficient plane. So I guess that the further you fly, the more fuel you have to carry and the more expensive it becomes. But I guess the Dreamliner has has allowed 
a flight of this distance to become economical. Sorry, they're just doing the boarding announcement, so that's probably going to round things out. The local time in London is now 10.16am and your Qantas 787 Dreamliner is now ready for boarding at gate 20. What a bonus that we yeah, got that little announcement. That. <laughs> Thank you. Right, one last question. Let's just set this in historical context and remember how long it's taken people in the past to get from London to Australia. Well, yeah, it, it used to take four days to get from Australia to London. I think there were, it was uh, seven stops in, in all sorts of places, Indonesia and India and the Middle East. So now to be able to get there in 17 hours is, is quite extraordinary. I mean, we're really... As Alan Joyce, the CEO of Qantas, has pointed out, Australia and Europe were the last two continents that were not connected by a direct flight, and now that's changing. So it is it is a historic flight, and Qantas is talking about that uh, the year 2020, they're going to be flying Sydney and Melbourne to London nonstop and possibly in the other direction to New York nonstop. So this may just be the beginning of a new era of really ultra-long-haul flights. Craig Plechter, editor of Traveller.com.au, speaking to me a couple of hours ago just before boarding that non-stop flight from Perth in Western Australia to London. This week saw the 15th anniversary of the invasion of Iraq by coalition forces led by the United States. Operation Iraqi Freedom, as it was called, lasted only 21 days, but the victory did not bring peace. In fact, it's estimated that a minimum of 100,000 Iraqis have since died in fighting, bomb attacks and sectarian murders. Hugh Sykes has visited Iraq many times since 2003 and now looks back at events following the defeat of Saddam Hussein's government. American tanks are one of the main highways into Baghdad soon after the war, in April 2003. The path of the car that I was in was blocked by a red double-decker bus which American forces had parked on one of the slip roads onto the highway to stop looters from getting into town. A Humvee armoured car accelerated urgently towards us. Stop, stop, stop. Stop! Yes, yes, yes. You know what they do if you don't. They were warning us. Problem? We have a detonation going off there. Yes, yes. In less than a minute. A controlled detonation, destroying a regime arms stockpile. We got past the red bus, edging with some difficulty over rubble and blocks of concrete and drove into the city centre, past shuttered shops on a mostly deserted road. A volatile crowd was gathered outside the Palestine Hotel, which had been partly requisitioned by the American military. A man wearing an Iraqi army uniform was holding up pieces of white cloth in each hand, offering to surrender to American troops on the other side of a roll of razor wire. Several men in the crowd turned on him beat him up with punches to his head, which knocked him to the ground, where they then kicked him. He screamed and shouted sorry in English. An early sign that not everybody was pleased that Saddam had been defeated. An American soldier pulled the razor wire to one side and dragged him to safety by his collar. Gunfire. Close to the Palestine Hotel later that week. And then an angry demonstration 
we are happy because Saddam has gone. But what about the future? The important thing is my safety, is my security, is my food, is my fuel. We are angry. We have a nature of angry. It's a hot weather, you know. And hot weather tends you to be hot. Hot mood. In that crowd, I heard a warning that supporters of Saddam were still armed and well-funded and that resistance to occupation had begun and would never end. It will never stop. Believe me. Every night, the shooting will never stop. He ran off before I could ask him how he knew that. The ingredients for violent resistance were already in place. One of the most significant was this. Electricity. There isn't any. I heard that everywhere. Baghdad became a city of power cuts. Often in the early days of the occupation, the only light after sunset was from car headlamps, charcoal kebab stalls and the moon. Driving through Baghdad in an open-sided Humvee with a canvas roof, a US military electrical engineer assured me that this darkness was temporary. Within the next 48 hours in Baghdad, we're going to be able to have rolling power throughout the city. But it didn't happen. And it made level-headed people exhausted or angry or despairing, or all three. This was Hala in intense, relentless summer heat in 2003. She was a university student. I can't sleep at night. There is no electricity. So your air conditioning doesn't work? It's too hot? Yes, it's too hot. Last night I didn't sleep. My life is so difficult. And sometimes I hate to continue. Believe me. You wouldn't want Saddam to come back, would you? Sometimes I think that... He at least offer us uh, the the simple life principles. And sometimes I hate him. The simple life principles? Like electricity and water and uh, the safety. And sometimes you hate him? Yes, of course. In 2015, 12 years after that promise to get rolling power back in 48 hours, the Brookings Institution in Doha reported that most Iraqis still only had mains power for between five and eight hours at best. Some new power plants were installed a few years after 2003 and some of the very old power stations were renovated, but it wasn't enough. Reliable electricity could have been the key to peace, as I heard from engineers in a power station and at a national grid switching centre. Electricity is the nerve of life for everything. For the modern life. <laughs> when you have the electricity, you can shut the mouth of all the Saddam supporters. Because if we have electricity, all the people, they can feel that really this is, there is a difference. If you have electricity, do you think it'll shut the mouths of the terrorists? Of course, sure. And an American civil engineer who was a battalion commander overseeing the installation of new power lines and of sewage plants and pumping stations was candid about this failure to engage fully with reconstruction. We're about a year behind. Whose fault is it? It's our fault. It's New America's fault. You can't wait for the security problem to be solved before you work on services and the infrastructure. The two have got to go in parallel. And you've got to figure out how to work on the services and the infrastructure because it's 
intertwined with the security. If you wait to solve the security problem, then you may never get there. <laughs> you may never solve the security problem. That report was from Hugh Sykes, and you can hear his second report from Iraq tomorrow. You're listening to the BBC World Service. This is NewsHour. A reminder of our top story this hour. President Macron of France has led tributes to Arnaud Beltram, a policeman who died of his wounds having swapped places with hostages during Friday's Islamist attack. Speaking to NewsHour, Florence Nicolique, a cousin of Mr Beltram, described her family's shock. It's very weird for us, I mean, the family, to see his face on the TV and listening to all these people calling him a hero and what he did was so wonderful and so brave. But at the same time, even though we were very surprised and shocked when we heard what happened, we we were not surprised in the sense that that's the thing he would do without hesitation. I'm sure he didn't even think of the consequences that could happen after that. In other news, the security chief in the Egyptian city of Alexandria has been targeted by a car bomb. He escaped unhurt, but a police officer was killed. This is Paul Henley with NewsHour from the BBC World Service. The Uber self-driving car that hit and killed a pedestrian in Arizona this week has many people wondering whether autonomous vehicles are safe. A group of philosophers has been focusing on a classic moral dilemma that has to be faced by those who programme driverless cars. It's known as the trolley problem. Professor Nicholas Evans is a philosopher based at the University of Massachusetts, LOL. He's received funding from the American National Science Foundation to translate ethical issues around driverless vehicles into algorithms for programming them. And he explained more. The philosophical problem with driverless cars is that we have to program them to make moral decisions. Most people make small but significant ethical decisions every time they drive their car. How much risk to impose on themselves or their children or their spouse or other people on the road every time they merge onto a freeway or when they should run a yellow light or if they're going to run a red light and of course more extreme cases such as are they going to speed or cause other forms of risk if their uh, loved ones are in danger and need to be rushed to an A&E. In the introduction to this, I mentioned the trolley problem. What is that? The trolley problem was invented by a philosopher by the name of Philippa Foote in 1967, and it goes a little bit like this. Say that you're on a tram car and it's out of control. It is currently going down a line where five workers are working, and let's suppose that they can't hear you coming, and if you stay on this track, they are going to be run over and all die. You have the ability, though, to pull a lever and it will switch the tram car from one track to the other. And on that other track, there's just one worker who, again, can't hear you. And so you're given a choice to pull a lever and save five people but kill one or to not pull a lever and kill five but save one. And how, theoretically, is a driverless car programmed to make such a decision, a similar decision? Well, at the moment, I don't think any of them are, but they will be and in the not-too-distant future. And so the kinds of things you could think about that might be like a trolley car problem is 
say your car is in an unavoidable crash. So say you're behind a, a large truck and something falls off the back of that truck, say another car, and your car has a series of options before it. It can either continue crashing straight into the large object in front of it, or it could swerve in one direction and it might hit a school bus, or it could swerve in another direction and it might hit a motorcyclist. So this is very much like the trolley problem. And what it comes down to is what kinds of decisions do we think are justifiable for a car to make in those kinds of cases? And I should mention that we're not suggesting at all that this pedestrian death in Arizona involves such a decision. No, absolutely not. But how can we be sure in the future that an autonomous car will respect human life above damage to things, for example? There's an easy practical question. On one account, some people might say that it shouldn't always respect life over uh, physical things. Someone might say, and this is pretty controversial, you know, say someone's tailgating you, say that autonomous vehicles aren't all over the road yet, they're still fairly rare. Say someone's tailgating you. Maybe you don't have a responsibility to save that tailgater if you need to suddenly break. Someone might say that because they're breaking the law, for example. But in general, one of the ways we could make sure that, by and large, people's lives are respected rather than material objects or financial objects uh, is to input some form of technical standard or regulation and basically set a minimal set of guidelines that car manufacturers have to follow when they're programming their cars. Just having this conversation, we're imagining all sorts of worst-case scenarios with driverless cars. Should we perhaps preface this with a driverless car is likely to be, in 99% of situations, safer than one with a driver? Could that be the case? I would probably preface that preface with, if it is tested properly, a driverless car is likely to be safer than a human being in 99.9% of cases. And I think one of the things about the Arizona death is that it's not clear that for some companies these cars are being tested properly. So in the United States, 1.18 people die for every 100 million miles that is driven in a year. Uber have only driven 3 million miles in their driverless cars, so they're actually something along the lines of 30 times more dangerous than a human-driven car. So we really have to make sure that we test these properly in order to achieve the benefits we say we're going to get out of driverless cars. Professor of Philosophy based at the University of Massachusetts, Nicholas Evans, on some of the issues brought up by that pedestrian accident, the fatal one in Arizona this week, involving an autonomous vehicle operated by Uber. Now, the US Justice Department is proposing rule changes that will effectively ban bump stocks, devices that allow semi-automatic weapons to fire like a machine gun. Meanwhile, as we were hearing earlier in the programme, rallies in support of gun control are planned across the US and beyond today. The marches will include survivors of the shootings at a school in Florida last month in which 17 people died. Gary O'Donoghue is the BBC's Washington correspondent. He's on Pennsylvania Avenue at the moment where people are gathering for one of those marches and I asked him first to explain what this move to ban bump stocks would mean in practice. Well, it's an issue that's floated around for a while, particularly in, in the wake of the shooting, the, the mass shooting in Las Vegas, where the perpetrator there did use a bump stock, which is a, effectively a mechanism that turns a semi-automatic into an automatic weapon. It's something that's uh, opposed by various gun lobby groups. It's something that wasn't relevant particularly in Florida, but it's, it's seen a, as at least a step towards some kind of wider 
controls. I mean, you'll hear people here at the march today asking for much more strenuous controls, such as banning assault weapons entirely, which is something that would be politically very, very hard to do. But they do also want tighter background checks. There can be some cross-party agreement on things like that. And there was some funding for that in the spending bill that President Trump signed yesterday. But in a sense, what these marchers are saying, look, this is, this is, it's time to do something new about school shootings. And their success has been to keep it in the front of people's minds and in the headlines since uh, Valentine's Day when the Florida shooting happened. Tell me about the march you're attending today. Well, this is likely to be the biggest one. There are going to be dozens and dozens around the country and indeed around other, in other parts of the world too in solidarity. One in London, for example. Uh, and the one here is going to be a, a group of, they think, you know, tens, possibly hundreds of thousands of students on Pennsylvania Avenue, which of course runs from the Capitol at one end to the White House on the other. There's going to be some speeches on a big stage behind me now. No one over 18 is going to be making speeches. They're all going to be students doing the speaking. And there's going to be a, a bunch of pop stars too. So it's going to be a huge event and it's going to send a very clear message. But though, of course, the president isn't in town. Ironically, he's in Florida. The BBC's Gary O'Donoghue talking to me from Washington, D.C. and bringing to an end this edition of NewsHour. Thank you for listening. Until next time, bye-bye. NewsHour has been a download from the BBC. To discover more and our terms of use, visit bbc.com slash podcasts.